Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. I'll have you know the contents of that dumpster are private. You stick your nose in, you'll be violating attorney dumpster confidentiality. I just wanted to say hello. Oh. Hello. <laughs> All right, we're done. You think the language in the Second Amendment is clear enough? You know, about the right to bear arms? Of course it's clear. Every American has the right to hang a pair of bear arms on their wall. How could that possibly be misconstrued? All right, fantastic then. Wait, you know what? Before we send this to the printer, let's take that abortion thing out. Oh, come on. I move for a hearing on the matter. What? You want me to have a special motion on the admissibility of the word asshole? Well, let me have ass then. That's close enough. What law school did you go to? I'll agree to it, Your Honor. You will? Why? I don't want any interlocutory appeals. What are you, a comedy team? Welcome to Opening Arguments the podcast that breaks down the law behind all the news stories you care about. This podcast is sponsored by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm Liz Dye. With me is Andrew Torres, and this is Opening Arguments, Episode 700. Hey, Liz. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? (laughs) I am great. Very, very happy to be here with you today. And we are tackling a story that is all over the news. Okay. Today, we are going to take another deep dive, since we know you love those things, into the (laughs) Supreme Court, which just granted certiorari in a case with significant implications for the day-to-day lives of real people. Yeah. Um, this story has everything. It's got um, it's Liz Warren's signature legislative accomplishment, which is one of the reasons Republicans are so hot to gut it. Um, it's got scumbag <laughs> predatory payday lenders, and of course, the ongoing project of right wingers to bring anything the government might do to actually help people and especially poor people to a screeching halt. Yeah, this so this is Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus Community Financial Services Association of America. And yeah, don't be deceived by Community Financial Services Association of America. That's a group that protects the rights of scumbag payday lenders. So it is the government's appeal of a very conservative Fifth Circuit decision, right? And Again, you know that appeal is going to a very conservative Supreme Court. Like, there are no good choices for the government here, right? They could have let this 
terrible, insane bananas decision stand. They could appeal it and still kind of have an uphill climb. Let's just say, like, this is the only thing that I do not envy about Liz Prologger. She is amazing. And she did just have to bring this one from uh, appearing before Judge Don Willett, who replaced Judge Priscilla Owen at the Supreme Court of Texas and was somehow not an upgrade. Um, <laughs> now, now Trump's put him on the Fifth Circuit um, and the panel contained him, Judge Englehart and Judge Wilson. So three Trump appointees, not good. A um, lot of low cards here. And indeed, it did produce a terrible opinion, which is which is on appeal to the Supreme Court now. Yeah. And so as long as we're talking about people who are, you know, the absolute worst, let's start with payday lenders, because I, I get it. You're listening to the show. Chances are pretty good. You think they're horrible, but they are way worse than that. All right. So uh, doing my best steel body here, like in theory, right? The idea is that payday lenders will float you a small loan until your paycheck arrives, because Roughly 50% of households in this country are living paycheck to paycheck and would be devastated by an unexpected expense like, say, you know, your hot water heater breaking during the winter. Okay, so you get a few hundred bucks now, and in two weeks, you pay that back at a huge rate of interest that's it nearly uh, – for most of these, it averages out to, to something on the order of like close to 400% uh, APR, annual APR, right? But I, I know, like if you squint, the idea you pay 325 back in two weeks to get 300 – no, you know what? I can't do it. This is still all inherently predatory. Oh, totally, totally. And of course, it gets worse because third-party watchdogs estimate that only 1% of all payday loans go to one-time emergency borrowers who like pay it back within two weeks and don't have to borrow again within a year. What you get really instead is that two weeks later, the borrower still can't afford to pay back that $300, at least not in full. And so that person has to borrow new money from the same lender just to cover the in- initial amount. And and those are yeah. called loan flips. That's That's where you pay a fee every time but you're not getting any new money and you're not paying down the principal. Um, responsible lending estimates that the average one-time borrower winds up with between 14 and 22 loan flips, um, each of those racking up new fees for borrowers who, let's be clear, do not have any money to start with. Yeah. The stories on that website are just horrifying. I, I, I want to share a couple with you. So take, for example, the case of Lisa Engelkins, who was a single mom making $8 an hour who needed to borrow $300. She says, quote, as soon as you get your first loan, you're trapped unless you know you will have the 300 extra dollars in the next two weeks. Lisa wound up paying $1,254 in total to renew that $300 payday loan 35 times. She thought she was getting new money, but she was just borrowing back the $300 that she repaid. She paid these renewal fees every two weeks for 17 months without paying down that loan at all. Right. And look, one more, and I and I promise this is the last. Arthur Jackson, a warehouse worker and grandfather of seven, who started off with a $200 loan that he increased to $300. Over five years, he paid $5,000 in interest. Oh, that lender, the payday lender, flips the loan over 100 times, collecting interest of up to $52.50 for each transaction while extending him zero new money. So his yeah. annual interest rate is in the triple digits, and he winds up filing for bankruptcy to save off eviction when he can't pay his mortgage anymore. And all of this is over 300 measly dollars. Yeah. So 
in an insane universe with functioning political parties, you'd have one party, let's say the progressive party that says, let's ban this kind of usury. Let's regulate these monsters out of existence. Right. And then, OK, you'd have the more fiscally conservative party would come in and say, OK, well, let's let's just cut down on the worst of the abuses. And then, you know, you'd wind up with some kind of early 90s George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton compromise that makes everybody mad, but does something, right? But um, no, we, we <laughs> haven't. Something. Yeah, we, we haven't had a functioning Congress in three decades. So what, what what's happened is that in 2017, right, this is all now stuck in the executive branch. So 2017, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Obama-appointed director, the first one, Richard Cordray, he drafted two rules that were designed to restrict the worst of the abuses of payday. Well, I don't even know the worst. They were designed to to restrict some payday lender abuse, right? And right. then uh, Cordray left office. Uh, he intended to turn it over to his successor, Leandra English, who was uh, the deputy director. And we covered this dispute on OA way back in episode number 126, if you want to refresh your recollection there. Trump thought the exact opposite and went to court and won the right to turn the CFPB over to, quote, acting director Mick Mulvaney, who, you know, had his fingerprints all over money stuff that Trump was doing in, in 2017 and 2018. Mulvaney kept the seat warm until Trump could appoint Kathy Craninger, uh, who was approved on a party line 50 to 49 vote. And among other things, uh, of course, repealed the payday lender rules in 2020. Craninger resigned. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's what her bio says. But that was when Biden took office and sent out hundreds of, hey, um, you could resign or I can fire you letters. So she resigned uh, in uh, January 20th, 2021. She was replaced with the current uh, CFPB director Rohit Chopra. And Chopra then reinstated one of those two payday lender rules. And that takes us to today. Didn't um, Cordray resign to run against DeWine for governor of Ohio? Yes. Am I hallucinating yeah. that? Yeah. Anyway, yep. um, fun fact, didn't win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the rule By Chopra... <laughs> yeah. That was, let's not... Let's not... Well, on that. Anyway, the rule Chopra put back in place is called the payment provision, and it's at 12 CFR section 1041.8. Um, and it... Just a quick note, CFR stands for the Code of Federal Regulations, and it's exactly what it sounds like. So when Congress makes new laws, they go into the U.S. Code, which is why we're citing USC all the time. It's not for the college or the sports <laughs> conference. Uh, so anyway, when executive branch agencies make regulations pursuant to those laws, they go in the CFR. And the rule that Chopra made prohibits payday lenders from attempting to withdraw funds from a borrower's bank account after two consecutive failed attempts due to insufficient funds, that is, bounced checks, unless the borrower specifically authorizes additional attempts. So they can't continue coming to your account and trying to get money every time you bounce a check. And yes, payday lenders do strong arm the borrowers into authorizing those repeated attempts. But, you know... It would be better to have a law that protects consumers than, say, not. Yeah. And in fact, that is another sub-restriction on what was the common practice before this rule went into effect, which was payday lenders would, uh, when they handed you that giant four-point font document to, to borrow the $300 in the first place, they would make you sign a pre-authorization for future access to your bank account in advance before the first loan as part of that, you know, giant pile of paperwork that no one but me reads, right? So put it all together. <laughs> 
the, <laughs> the payday lender rule is pretty modest, right? It, it, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't regulate these monsters out of existence. But, you know, like you said, right, it's a step in the right direction. And the CFPB found quite sensibly that, you know, after a lender made two consecutive attempts to withdraw payments from your bank account and it fails and it bounces, quote, further attempts are very unlikely to succeed, yet they clearly result in further harms to consumers, right, in the form of the overdraft fees, right? So absent uh, a new and specific authorization and not just that boilerplate pre-authorization crap, the CFPB determined that it would be, quote, unfair and abusive, end quote, for lenders to continue to attempt to withdraw those payments. Right. That language is key. Because remember, an executive branch agency cannot make a law. Only Congress can make a law. What the agencies can do is enact rules when when they're given the authority to do so by Congress, right? So here, the authority comes from the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act, which you might Mm -hmm. remember as the comprehensive response by Congress to the 2008 financial crisis, which you know, tanked the economy and led to all those foreclosures that displaced 10 million people from their homes. Not great. Yeah. yeah. And so Dodd-Frank, among other things, established the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And again, Elizabeth Warren, uh, that was her brainchild when she was a Harvard Law professor, right? Um, And and what they did was um, they created it as an independent bureau within the Federal Reserve System. That's right there in the law, right? 12 U.S.C. 5491, right? And they authorized the CFPB to, quote, implement and, where applicable, enforce federal consumer financial law to ensure, among other things, that, quote, consumers are protected from unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts and practices. So put all that together. The Dodd-Frank Act said here, we've had unregulated capitalism that turned out to be terrible. 10 million people were displaced from their homes. It tanked the economy. We're going to create a watchdog organization, and we're going to give that group the power to make rules that protect consumers from unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts and practices. And then a decade later, that that group, the CFPB, found that the way payday lenders try to collect loans is unfair, deceptive, or abusive. So uh, case closed, right? Maybe not actually case closed, um, because as it turns out, the CFPB, while not perfect, actually did and does a lot of good things, because there are a lot of corporations out there engaged in unfair, deceptive, or abusive practices toward consumers. For example, in 2016, the CFPB sued and won $132 million in restitution and another $40 million in civil penalties against a scumbag debt relief company called Morgan Drexen. So- You know, when basically everyone who engages in unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts and practices towards consumers was hired by the Trump administration, one of those people's top priorities was to start a war on multiple fronts to try and nerf everything that the CFPB could possibly do to protect consumers. Yeah, and I don't want to get stuck on the rabbit trail, but their most successful effort was a case called Sala Law LLC versus the CFPB. That could be its own deep dive. Maybe we will do it someday. But um, that was... Yet another Roberts Court 5-4 decision with the then four liberal justices in dissent that somehow found that Congress was not free to create the CFPB with, you know, any meaningful degree of independence from, you know, regime change. Right. So uh, as I as I alluded to, the original Dodd-Frank bill provided that the director of the CFPB would serve a five year term and could only be fired for cause. Right. And that was defined in the law as, quote, 
inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office, end of quote. Now, look, that's still pretty broad. That still covers a lot of things, but, uh, you know, it's not can be fired at will. And so a, a different scumbag debt servicing firm, this one called Sala Law, decided to sue, arguing that, you know, Trump should be able to fire the director for any reason whatsoever because he's their god king. And, you know, why not turn the whole thing into a political football, despite the fact that Congress's clear intent was to do the exact opposite? And of course, they won because, you know, John Roberts remains deeply conservative, no matter what Politico tries to tell you every couple months. Amen to that, sister. Anyway, (laughs) that brings us to this lawsuit, which started life in 2018, back when both provisions of the payday lending rules were in place, and Mick Mulvaney was active director. Just as a little aside, remember that fun time when (laughs) Mick Mulvaney was simultaneously White House chief of staff, head of the Office of Management Budget, and head of CFPB? And I I just looked this up because I was like, didn't this, didn't he try and change the name? He sure did try and change the name. He tried to change it to the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection because... (laughs) I don't even know why. Anyway, that was a weird time. (laughs) Right. Cool. (laughs) Anyway, so in this case, the scumbag payday lenders lobbed everything they could think of at the wall to argue that somehow the CFPB or the BFCB or whatever lacked the authority (laughs) to protect consumers from this, you know, their particular kind of predation because that was their business model. And I I cannot, I cannot overstate how ridiculous. Ridiculous. This complaint is like virtually all of it is like a grab bag of consensus that both the U.S. District Court in Texas and the Fifth Circuit, i.e. the most conservative circuit in the country, found to be complete nonsense. Yeah. Again, understatement. These arguments included, first, a challenge to the CFPB's authority to make rules under the Administrative Procedure Act. That lost. Second, that the rules that they made were made by a director who was then retroactively determined by that Sala law case that I just described to have been, quote, unconstitutionally insulated from removal. Uh, that one lost big time because it's super dumb. And then uh, that the <laughs> Bureau's authority violates the non-delegation doctrine. And we flagged that before. We need to do a deep dive on it. It is it is one yeah. of the emerging weapons of the right uh, that they are trying to use before the Roberts court to, you know, again, stop the government from doing anything. But look, even that one was a bridge too far for the Fifth Circuit. So, you know, giant silver polished platter full of nothing burgers. Yes, you would think, except there was one that they decided was a something burger. So the CFPB's um, cert petition says that the plaintiffs, quote, briefly asserted that the CFPB's funding mechanism violates the appropriations clause, and they weren't kidding. So after losing a trial and appealing to the Fifth Circuit, the payday lenders spent less than two pages of their 30-plus page (laughs) brief um, talking about this appropriations clause claim. Because, like, spin the stupid wheels, win stupid prizes, and, like, they hit the jackpot. They were like, this is too stupid. I guess we'll stick this in here as, like, a random filler. And... (laughs) Lo and behold, that was the one that the Fifth Circuit bid on. So um, the circuit struck down the entire payday lender rule because they think that the CFPB is improperly funded. And like, what? Okay. So if that one seems like a non sequitur to you, congratulations, you're normal. (laughs) Yeah. This decision is, in fact, Fifth Circuit levels of terrible. Well, no one accused those guys of being normal. And we'll go into how abnormal those weirdos are when we get back from the ad break. Hey, everybody, this is an ad for ZipRecruiter. You know, lots of sectors of the economy are booming right now, including e-commerce, healthcare, hospitality, just to name a few. 
If you need to hire qualified candidates ASAP for any of these industries or any other industry, you need ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. Look, I hear from small businesses all the time, and I know that growing your team can be a real pain point. ZipRecruiter makes it easy. They use powerful matching technology to find the qualified candidates for a wide range of roles. And if you're offering a unique job, ZipRecruiter offers attention-grabbing labels that speak to job flexibility like urgent, training provided, remote, and much more. Let ZipRecruiter keep your team growing strong no matter what the industry. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So see for yourself. Go to our exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. Again, that's Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R dot com slash OA. ZipRecruiter.com slash OA. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Okay, so before the break, we promised you that the Fifth Circuit was bonkers when it ruled that the CFPB was not constitutionally funded. So this opinion begins, first line, with this, I'm not making this up, this this insane hyperbole. (laughs) Quote, an elective despotism was not the government we fought for, but one which should not only be founded on free principles, but in which the powers of government should be so divided and balanced. Did they like take the decaf out of the machine at the Fifth Circuit? Good Lord. All right. Um, as it, no one could transcend their legal limits without being effectually checked and restrained by the others. These foundational precepts of the American system of government animate the plaintiff's claim in this action. They also compel our decision today. What the hell? What is this? Okay. So, yes, Congress making payday lenders not charge a third, fourth, fifth bounce check fee is, quote, an elective despotism, even though the results the Fifth Circuit wants is way more despotic in terms of giving the president more leverage to undermine the CFPB. That's that's <laughs> nuts. Like, the whole thing is nuts. But, like, that part there, super nuts. <laughs> yeah. And, all right, to unpack that, right, we got to get into the financial argument. And, and understand that. We need to know how the CFPB is funded. So bear with me for just a little bit, because, look, there's a kernel of truth here. And that that kernel is that the CFPB is funded a a little bit differently than a lot of other executive branch agencies. Pin spoiler alert, not than all of them, though. But anyway, so the way it's funded is actually the kind of thing that you think, I don't know, would actually appeal to 
actual financial conservatives if they meant what they said, which they don't. All right. Here's what oh, I mean by shit. that. Yeah. Right. So look, the CFPB can collect fines, right? Like the big ones from Morgan Drexen. And so, you know, part of the law was designed to help the CFPB show that it pays for itself rather than, you know, requiring a specific new line item every year. Right. And, and if you're a realist, you might infer that that's probably another aspect of the Dodd-Frank bill, you know, trying to insulate the CFPB from becoming a political football by taking away the power of a consumer hostile administration to come in and defund it by just zeroing out that line item. So, of course, that's why scumbag payday lenders would like to challenge and now have successfully won that that kind of funding is somehow impermissible because uh, reasons, right? So Because the Fifth um, Circuit, what are the reasons do you need, Andrew? <laughs> yeah. So th- there's another aspect to this, and that is that the CFPB is, you know, by law, a subcomponent. It's under the Federal Reserve, which is also a quasi-relatively independent agency under the executive branch, right? Uh, uh, uh. Do not be giving those Federal Reserve as a Ponzi scheme loons any more ideas. They already think taxation is theft. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, no, I did, did point taken. Anyway, each year, by law, the Federal Reserve Board transfers to the CFPB. This is how the CFPB gets funded. They get, quote, the amount determined by the director to be reasonably necessary into carrying out the authorities of the Bureau under the federal consumer financial law, taking into account such other sums made available to the Bureau from the preceding year, i.e. what's left over, right? That's 12 U.S.C. 5497. And, okay, just in case you were wondering if, you know, in some alternate universe, uh, Bernie Sanders was named chairman of the (laughs) Fed and uh, decided to allocate a trillion dollars to the CFPB or something. Congress also protected, you know, conservatives against that. They specified that the total amount that the Fed can transfer to the CFPB, quote, shall not exceed 12 percent of the total operating expenses of the Federal Reserve System. That was pegged to 2009. That's uh, just about $600 million. Uh, it, it gets adjusted each year for inflation. Still, we're not talking about a lot of money in terms of the overall size of the federal no. government. And that is the max, right? The Fed can and has allocated a lot less. So then that money transferred to the CFPB is deposited into a bureau fund at a Federal Reserve Bank. And Congress specified that those funds, quote, shall be immediately available to the bureau, end of quote, and, quote, shall remain available until expended to pay all of the expenses of the bureau in carrying out its duties and responsibilities, end of quote. Again, this is all in that same provision, 12 U.S.C. 5497. That's the law Congress passed, which is going to be really, really important to remember as we talk about these specific legal arguments. So, you know, put a pin in that one. Yeah. Don't we always tell people that shall is non-discretionary language and like if Congress says shall, they actually mean it? Yeah, but you know, not not to the Fifth Circuit and and spoiler alert, maybe not to the Supreme Court. Christ. Okay. Now, here's the part that conservatives should like, but you know, don't. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. the Federal Reserve System earns its own money from a whole bunch of sources, right? Including interest on securities that they've acquired through open market operations, right? That the market, uh, fees received for services provided to banks, and interest on loans they've made to banks, right, depository institutions. So the Fed doesn't have to go back to Congress every year to figure out how to fund the CFPB with taxes, you know, which would have made, I don't know, Ronald Reagan really happy. But Mm -hmm. let's, let's assume you're, you know, 
a Republican now, you're nine light years to the right of Reagan. And you're thinking, okay, well, this might create a perverse incentive for the CFPB to just, you know, find the crap out of everybody to fund itself, right? You know, to to, to bring in those revenues. The 2010 Congress has you covered, okay? (laughs) Its answers were... One, the CFPB still has to prove those fines in court, right? Like, you can't just impose them randomly and, you know, uh, their targets have lots and lots of money to pay lawyers. So, you know, slow your roll a little bit there. And (laughs) and secondly, right, the the Dodd-Frank bill, and this is more importantly, right, the Dodd-Frank bill already took that argument into account, right? It specifically prohibits the CFPB from using its fines for anything other than first and primarily paying the victims harmed by the violations of consumer financial laws, if there's anything left over, they can spend it on consumer education and financial literacy programs, but, you know, not enforcement. Well, you you can't feed the beast, Andrew. Government is the beast. Taxation is theft. (laughs) I I just wish this were a joke. Anyway, so... (laughs) Now, here's the part about that that conservatives, you know, shouldn't like and, in fact, don't, right? In the Dodd-Frank bill, Congress specifically provided that the funds provided by the Federal Reserve to the CFPB, quote, shall not be subject to review by House and Senate appropriations, right? And this can this is all in the same section of the U.S. Code, 12 U.S.C. 5497. Like, Congress was super clear about its intent here. Anyway, the effect of that is that the CFPB doesn't come up as a line item, you know, with a giant red siren attached to it that a President Trump or a President DeSantis can just, you know, axe when they get into office. Oh, my God. Shah, bite your tongue. <laughs> Yeah. And if you didn't hear our uh, February bonus episode on uh, President DeSantis, go uh, go check that out. $2 oh. on Patreon. Anyway, uh, I know. Yeah, very, uh, very, very clever uh, uh, plug there. Look, despite that, right, the counter argument is the CFPB isn't isn't some kind of slush fund. You know, the, the, the fact that it's not an individual line item does not mean that there isn't oversight. So Dodd-Frank set up a bunch of other mechanisms for monitoring their use of funds, right? So, for example... The director of the CFPB must regularly submit reports to and appear before congressional committees, including to justify the CFPB's budget request of the previous year. And so, yes, that means Marjorie Taylor Greene can, you know, subpoena Rohit Chopra and Benghazi him and, you know, to her little heart's content. And the Comptroller General must conduct an annual financial audit of the CFPB and submit that report to Congress. Right. So, look. Yes, there is a complicated funding mechanism, but but all of this seems like exactly <laughs> the kind of thing we leave up to Congress. Like if you're a payday lender and you don't like it, why isn't the remedy to just go to Congress and persuade them to change the law? It's, it's not like payday lenders don't have billions of dollars to buy whatever members of Congress they need to get this bill taken <laughs> care of. Yeah, no, that that really is the most galling aspect of this decision. And, and, and it really is, you know, another litmus test here in terms of, you know, whether this court really means what it pretends to say uh, when it claims to be an originalist. Yes. So a spoiler on that one. No, they do not. Uh, (laughs) But but okay. as I read it, the argument that somehow persuaded the Fifth Circuit is is rooted in the appropriations clause. So that comes from Article one, Section nine of the Constitution. And it just says that, quote, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. Yeah. 
And if you follow, you know, the ordinary model of jurisprudence, you might ask, hey, has the Supreme Court ever ruled on what the appropriations clause means? You know, and as it turns out, they have. And relatively recently, by which, you know, I mean, 1990, right? So, and also that ruling is very, 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 very clear, right? That case was called Office of Personnel Management v. Richmond, 496 U.S. 414, and it was a 7-2 decision, and the two dissents came from the court's most liberal justices, Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan. So again, this was not a, you know, controversial, crazy, wacko lefty opinion, right? Right. That case was about paying benefits to retirees out of the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund, you know, which also makes it pretty close on the facts of this case, right? And the court, I can't emphasize this enough, was crystal clear what the Appropriations Clause means. So let's quote it directly and at unnecessary length. (laughs) (laughs) Our cases underscore the straightforward and explicit command of the appropriations clause, it means simply that no money can be paid out of the Treasury unless it has been appropriated by an act of Congress. Spoiler alert, Dodd-Frank is an act of Congress. And then, for good measure, just to make sure no dumb Supreme Court in the future of Fifth Circuit could ever misinterpret this, they added... The command of the clause is not limited to the relief available in a judicial proceeding seeking payment of public funds. Any exercise of a power granted by the Constitution to one of the other branches of government is limited by a valid reservation of congressional control over funds in the Treasury. So again, Congress, Dodd-Frank, has exercised control over the funds in the Treasury, so... Case closed? No, not case closed, because you, my friend, are thinking like a lawyer instead of a howler monkey on the Supreme Court. And those people only care about what guys in powdered wigs thought in the 18th century. So here's the thing. The good guy should win that argument, too, because the whole point of the appropriations clause was the power of the purse, right? The idea. And 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 this is explicit throughout the Federalist Papers and the early framers writing was that they did not want the Constitution to permit some kind of loophole where the executive, where the president could take unilateral action rack up a whole bunch of expenses and then leave Congress holding the bag and, you know, forced into a Hobson's choice between defaulting on debt, which would be bad, or, you know, being forced to pay for something they hadn't authorized, which would be bad. So this clause serves as a check on the executive branch, not a check on Congress, which is, you know, the bizarre reading given to it by the Fourth Circuit. And we will find even more about what people 250 years ago thought about online micro-lending after the break. <laughs> hey, guys. This is an ad for RexMD, the most trusted leader in men's telehealth. And by men's telehealth, I mean erectile dysfunction, sexual health, hair growth. You know, the stuff that guys are sometimes nervous about for no reason. Erectile dysfunction is a common medical issue that over 30 million men in the U.S. tackle every day. The doctors at RexMD will evaluate you online, no office visit needed, and ship medication directly to your door before the big day. With RexMD, they're here to help and provide you with real FDA-approved medications at the best price. RexMD makes getting generic and branded Viagra or Cialis easy. Everything's online, even the prescription, and they deliver it discreetly to your door. No waiting rooms, no trips 
trips to the doctor, no insurance, and no co-pays. Take advantage of their best deal ever and save up to 90% off and pay as low as $2 per pill with our exclusive link. Go to rexmd.com slash OA for this limited time deal. RexMD has made the whole process so simple. There's no need to jump through a bunch of hoops. With just a few clicks of a button, you can talk to a medical professional, create a personalized plan, and get the products discreetly shipped straight to your door within two days. It's fast, simple, and cheap, and you can access your U.S. licensed RexMD physician anytime you need afterwards. RexMD has already helped over 350,000 guys gain confidence quickly and conveniently, and they're here to help you. Act now to take advantage of their deal by heading to rexmd.com slash OA. Our exclusive deal will save up to 90% off when you pay as low as $2 per dose on generic Viagra instead of $90 plus on branded Viagra. Started packs of generic Viagra or Cialis are now available for our listeners to get started. That's rexmd.com slash OA for up to 90% off. Your partner will thank you. Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Uh, okay, Liz. So before the break, I gave you a little bit of a preview of the originalist arguments against the Fifth Circuit's weird view of the appropriations clause. And, um... I shouldn't have to make these because right before that, I explained the law is super clear and no court has ever come up with a wackadoodle interpretation that, you know, the Fifth Circuit did. But because the government is aware that the Supreme Court is terrible, the CFPB <laughs> needed a beefy argument about, you know, original intent to to even have a chance of picking off two conservatives, right? That That's what we need here. And again, I wish they didn't have to make it, but like their argument here is really, really strong. It says the appropriations clause does not, however, limit the manner in which Congress itself may exercise its authority to make appropriations by law. The founders knew how to impose such a limit when they wished to do so. In empowering Congress to raise and support armies, the Constitution specifies that, quote, no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years, end of quote. That specific limitation reflects the founders' recognition that the Constitution would otherwise allow Congress to authorize standing appropriations that would keep funds flowing until a later Congress repealed that initial appropriations law. So in other words, they could write it differently, right? Back to the, the brief. As a check on a standing army, the founders chose to depart from ordinary appropriations rules for army and only army appropriations. Madison contrasted that with the special constraint in the British Constitution, which fixed no limit whatsoever on the discretion of the legislature regarding the duration of appropriations for the army. That's quoting Federalist 51. And they conclude, practice dating to the founding confirms that the appropriations clause does not limit Congress's authority to determine the duration, form, source, and specificity of appropriations. Hard to get better than that. Okay. I'm a little bit afraid to ask, but <laughs> what what persuaded the Fifth Circuit otherwise, other than like wanting to rule in favor of the very worst possible corporations doing some of the worst possible shit? Yeah. I, it, 
it's very hard to steal bot this argument, to be honest, right? So uh, here's what the Fifth Circuit said, and see if you can make any sense out of this. After expressly acknowledging that, quote, the appropriations clause expressly was intended as a restriction upon the dispersing authority of the executive, end of quote, which, you know, is the argument I just made and is true. The Fifth Circuit then quoted from a 35-year-old law review article to argue that, uh, yeah, quote, uh, it gets better, of equal importance is what the clause takes away from Congress, the option not to require legislative appropriations prior to expenditure. And without, I could get lost in this, uh, without diving deeply into that article by Kate Stiff, uh, I will quote the very next sentence of her article that, you know, the Fifth Circuit conveniently omitted, quote, If the Constitution thus strictly forbids executive appropriation of public funds, the exercise by Congress of its power of the purse is a structural imperative, end of quote. And, um, you know, the government didn't explain this in its cert petition, so I hope they will in at least a footnote in their appellate brief, right? Like, this is absolutely mischaracterized. What Stith was arguing for in her interpretation of the Appropriations Clause in that 35-year-old law review article is that that it's not enough for Congress to merely direct federal agencies to produce a better world. Those are her words. Uh, They can't do that like in the abstract. They have to specifically direct the precise job for which the funds they're allocating should be spent. And that is exactly what Dodd-Frank does. Wait. Are you telling me that the Fifth Circuit's <laughs> sole rationale here is to misinterpret a 35-year-old law review article? Are you kidding? Yep. Okay. <laughs> nope. From there, as good originalists, my guess would be that they then doubled down on the bullshit and took a random word out of the Appropriations Clause and just, just made up stuff about how that word really meant something else in 1789. Please tell me there's going to be like ancient dictionaries here. <laughs> <laughs> not not even ancient dictionaries, it's so made up. So in this case, it's the word appropriations. And again, I have to give you the preface, set the stage here. First, the Fifth Circuit admitted that, quote, every court to consider the CFPB's funding structure, including the D.C. Circuit and s- at least six district courts, quote, has deemed it constitutionally sound. Yeah, and, that's a little uh, something there. Yeah, that's a little something. And the Fifth Circuit further conceded that Congress has, you know, repeatedly established and funded other executive branch agencies that, like the CFPB, are funded by something other than just a line item in the budget. But the court, <laughs> quote, respectfully disagreed, end of quote, with all of those decisions. Yeah, North Carolina abstains courteously, right? All right. Okay. Yes. So so much respect. All right. Look, so the Fifth Circuit basically invented out of whole cloth a requirement that an appropriations means more than just a law providing an agency with a funding source, detailed directives, and spending authority. They said that does not (laughs) suffice, but like – Unless I've missed something, they never specified what would suffice. What what the hell is an appropriation if you're one of these um, geniuses from the Fifth Circuit? Your guess is as good as mine, Liz, and and counts for you know twice as much. Um, <laughs> all the Fifth Circuit did was just they they never defined what was an appropriation because they're making it up. That they just yeah. 
piled on this laundry list of grievances with Congress's effort to, you know, insulate the CFPB from future meddling by the executive branch, which, again, is a thing Congress does all the time. So, you know, the Fifth Circuit complained that the CFPB, you know, does not, quote, rely on annual appropriations, but, you know, rather reserves up to a capped amount of funding each year from transfers from the Fed. Right. Right. And because that court needed to, I don't know, throw some shade at the Fed itself, uh, it called it funded, quote, outside the appropriations process through bank assessments, which the court then said creates, quote, a double insulation from Congress's purse strings. And that's crazy because it's Congress that set up all the strings. Yeah. This is just bizarre. (laughs) This is a really strange separation of powers argument because the court is, what, ostensibly concerned about what Congress can and can't do, but they're free to, like, uh, amend and repeal any part of Dodd-Frank at any time. Like, literally the core of this argument that the conservatives weirdos always make is, you know, if you don't (laughs) like it, go to Congress and have them change it, which is is fun because, you know, Congress can't can't get shit done. Um, But I guess that that only works about protecting a conservative law that you know the progressives don't have the votes to overturn. When When it's something that they like... Not so much. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the Fifth Circuit argued that Congress expressly renounced its check on the CFPB by legislating that the funds derived from the Federal Reserve System shall not be subject to reserve, to review by the House and Senate Appropriations Committee, which is, like, is just wrong. Like the, the check is future legislation. Like you don't get more schoolhouse rock than that. Yeah, I, I'm almost afraid to ask, but but can the Fifth Circuit do worse than this? Like it's not going to get any worse. <laughs> Oh, of course it can get worse. And of course, it it is even worse than that. Because, like, even if you could somehow parse your way through, you know, applying a constitutional provision that was designed as a check on the executive spending power as somehow being a check on Congress's spending power, which makes no sense. And even if you ignore literally all of the legislative history and judicial precedent, you still don't get to the outcome that the Fifth Circuit reached here. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I guess it, it makes sense, and it's like a variation on the seal of law argument that the plaintiffs raised and lost because the Supreme Court found in 2020 that, quote, remove for cause provision for firing the director was unconstitutional. But that didn't mean the Supreme Court undid literally everything the CFPB did from the beginning. So, okay, right. if you don't like the way the CFPB is funded, go ahead and strike out those funding provisions, require it to be a separate line item on the budget, but don't invalidate the pay. I mean, that's ridiculous. That, that's You're going to invalidate the payday lender rule but like leave the whole thing. St- I mean, what are they talking about here? Yeah, no. And and that is a question of severability, right? Can you excise part of the statute or do you have to get rid of the entire thing? And the test here is whether there is, quote, a linear nexus, end of quote, <laughs> between uh-huh. the agency's unconstitutional funding scheme, uh, you know, I would say allegedly unconstitutional funding scheme, and its promulgation of the rule. And, and so doesn't seem to be, right? Like, regulating payday lenders is regulating payday lenders no matter where you get the money from. But that's not what the Fifth Circuit said. The Fifth Circuit said that the nexus was, quote, the funding employed by the Bureau to promulgate the payday lending rule was wholly drawn through the agency's unconstitutional funding scheme. And Holy tautology, Batman. Like, everything the CFP, <laughs> CFPB does would have a nexus under that test. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so I, I, I just so you understand, because I get, you know, severability, we're, we're sort of a little bit in the weeds here. The Dodd-Frank law passed in 2010 has 
an express severability clause in it. In other words, Congress really, really, really wanted to make sure as much of the law as possible would survive if any of it were struck down by a court. And so it said that. It put that in the bill. It said this law should be interpreted in such a way as to provide for the severability of any unconstitutional provisions, leaving the rest of the law intact. So the question is, could you do that? And here, I don't know, seems super easy to me to say, all right, conservatives on the court, like, if you don't like the funding, fine, strike out the funding. Again, we spent 40 minutes telling you why those arguments are dumb, but it is what so it is. Dumb. Right? So dumb. <laughs> but but you could do that and then, I don't know, keep funding the CFPB with a line item and let it regulate payday lenders, right? Like, But this is just the, the, the surest indication that the Fifth Circuit does not really care what Congress wants, even while it's pretending desperately that that's what it's doing. Right. Yeah, I mean— isn't that always the wheeze that they say, well, why don't you get Congress to pass a law? Like, and then the, you know, Congress passes a law and they were like, no, that's not that kind of law. I, I mean, it's all yeah, right. right. Yeah. So Liz, do you want to try and read the tea leaves? What do you think is going to happen here? I think this is just too wacky. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just <laughs> too, it's just too outcome. Look, we, we always accuse the Supreme Court of making outcome determinative decisions, right? They, they, they get the result and then they work the logic backwards. But I think the logic right. here is, is too sideways and is going to be too, too destructive. And I, I just, I don't think you're going to get five conservatives to, to bless this, this kind of nonsense. I don't know. What do you think? I sure hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think, you know, it's possible that, uh, you know, the liberals will, will, will pick off Roberts, but um, I, it, it will be interesting. And look, like, we just had the Supreme Court grant cert. It's going to be quite a while before the case is briefed, longer than that before it's heard, longer than that before it's argued, longer than that before we get an opinion. But, you know, we're going to continue to track it. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get back to you on this one. And finally, let's, before we leave you, thank our new patrons. Oh, yeah. Colin Armbruster, Sally, Eric Stewart, Michelle Schmidt, Jeannie Lyons, Bill Gaskins, Andrea Eichelman, Elizabeth Kidd, Josh Rupti, I Mess With Texas, Charles <laughs> Vigneron, Jim Vernon, and Maya. Yeah. These patrons support us for as little as a buck every other episode on patreon.com slash law or sometimes more. So thank you guys so much for your support and you make this show possible. Thank you all. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Liz. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it would be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, with assistance from Teresa Gomez and Deborah Smith.
Opening Arguments is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 